Church, if you have your scripture, your Bibles with you, uh, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Listen now for God's word. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from well, this morning, as we just read, I want to spend some time with you speaking about Mary and Martha. Now, if you've been going to church for some time, it's possible that you might know some loose things about these two individuals named Mary and Martha. And before we get into the topic today, I want to speak to you about this topic of busyness or this topic of distraction versus something called presence. That's our topic. And part of the reason why I'm focusing on this is because you're in the season of 40 days of preparing ourselves for prayer fest. In my opinion, I truly believe that one of the enemies of presence, one of the enemies of prayer is that we live in a culture and our lives are so inundated with busyness and distraction. Now, we're going to get into it, but I want to spend a couple moments giving you a little context of what we just read. Mary and Martha are sisters. They have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus is known to Christians because he once died and by the power of God, God raises him from the dead. Now, it's really interesting because in the Gospels, there are several stories about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but we really don't have too much context about their backgrounds. For example, we're not quite sure how old or young they are, even though Bible scholars, if we had to guess, they're probably much younger than we think. When I first read the story of Mary and Martha, I just assumed that they were in their 30s and 40s. Bible scholars think that they were most likely in their teenage years, at the oldest, probably early 20s. We have no background about their parents, for example. What we do know is that they lived in a town called Bethany. And Bethany was a very small town, not that far away from a larger town called Jerusalem. Now, this story really begins 
when we're told that Jesus and the disciples, as they're going about doing ministry, they enter into this town called Bethany. And Martha is so excited. Maybe she's heard about Jesus. Maybe she's witnessed Jesus' teachings or miracle. But it really escalates when Martha is so excited about Jesus and does what? Invites him to their house. And I want you to realize what it means to be a follower of Jesus is not just observing Jesus. It's not just being a fan of Jesus. It's not just being an admirer of Jesus. Sometimes I really believe that in our Western Christian mindset, we have a safe distance from Jesus. We might admire his teachings. We might be able to even regurgitate some of his words. And I'm telling you, while that's not a bad thing, what it means to be a Christian is to invite Jesus into our lives. It's to invite Jesus into our marriage, into our parenting, into our home, into our children. We can do lots of Christian activities and still not invite Jesus into our hearts. This is so important. So this story really escalates when Martha, even at her young age, moved by the gospel, moved by the good news, says what? Jesus, come to my home. So as Jesus comes to their home, let's now pick up on this theme of busyness and distraction. Now, in my opinion, there's kind of a lazy way of interpreting this passage. A lazy way is to simply say, Martha, bad. Mary, good. Be like Mary. Now, it's a really lazy interpretation. I don't want you to walk away thinking that Martha is a bad person or that what she's doing is bad. There's a lot of nuances that we have to learn. I'll give you an example. As we read the story from the Gospel of Luke, we're introduced to a word that describes Martha. And the word that's described to explain what Martha is trying to do is a word called diakonen in Greek. The word diakonen might sound somewhat familiar because the word deacon comes from the word diakonen. And it literally means to serve. It's a beautiful thing. So here's Martha with good heart, with good intentions, but she loses sight of why she's serving. So I don't want you to walk away going, well, I don't want to be like Martha. I would actually tell you, we should be like Martha, but not forget the why we do what we do. So let's talk about the story. Now, for the sake of illustration simplicity, my prayer today is that I want to be as practical as possible. I want to I encourage you to walk away today. My prayer is the Holy Spirit imparts the power and the presence of the Spirit. But I also want to give you practical tools to assist you. And so one of the things that we want to do before we talk about how do we live in presence as opposed to business and distraction is that we have to identify 
barriers in our lives. So let's spend some time talking about the barriers in our lives that build up busyness and distraction. So I want to speak to you about three things, and then after that, we'll speak about four things practically to assist you. Does that work? You with me? All right. So here's the first one. You're going to think to yourself, man, that's not rocket science. Why is busyness and distraction a reality in many of our lives? It's because we're actually really busy. We're actually living in a busy culture. You're not making it up. It's not imagination. It's not some fictitious thing. Especially in the last 30 years, there has been an increase of a demand for something called productivity. And so there's pressure on our lives to produce. And so as a result, there are major shifts that have taken place in our larger culture and society, which influences not just the church, but it influences the way that we are living our lives as well. I'll give you a few examples to prove my point. Americans, in comparison to the rest of the world, on an average, Americans get two less hours of sleep. Some of you look like it right now. Wake up. <laughs> All right. We get two hours less because in the Western concept, there's such a demand for go, 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 go. So much demand for productivity. What a lot of folks don't realize is that from a spiritual perspective, rest and sleep is incredibly spiritual. We need it to find balance and flourishing. Did you realize that because of a lack of sleep, that it has a dramatic connection to things like diabetes, a lack of concentration, an increase in depression and anxiety? Now, in this sermon, we don't have the time to do a scientific breakdown, but that's been proven over the years. We're just living in a very busy culture. I'll give you a couple more statistics. Now, I'm really grateful that we believe that women and men are given gifts and skills and talents and that God can use brothers and sisters. Amen? This is so important. But just to give you a little bit of a shift, and I'm not saying that women shouldn't be working. Don't take that from what I'm trying to say. In the 1960s in the United States, as an example, only 20% of women worked in the 1960s. Today, families, your families, 70% of families have both adults that are working. In the United States, 86% of men work 40 hours or more. 67% of women are working 40 hours or more. Now, I'm just talking to you about jobs. I haven't even started on your to-do list, your chores, Costco runs, a baby, maybe two babies. Some of you are parents to several young children. Sleepless nights, kids becoming teenagers. 
dun, dun, dun. And then there's sports and there are debate teams and after school clubs. It is a mad science how parents can coordinate pickups and drop-offs. There's more sports and then teenagers learn to drive. Dun, dun, dun. That's where we're at right now. And then there's just the reality of friendships and relationships and social life and caring for our parents and our grandparents and our children and our children's children. There's church and small groups and ministry. I don't know about you, but I feel a little anxious right now. But you see my point? You see why busyness and distraction are real elements and so as we're talking about prayer life, it's so beautiful, but you actually have to identify some of the weeds that are growing in our backyard before you start planting flowers and beautiful things. So the first one is that we're just busy. Here's the second one, is that we live in a culture that begins to see our identity rooted in busyness. So for many of us, I'm going to just kind of get in your hearts here. I believe if you're anything like me, we begin to see our worth, our value, our significance, not in the truth that I am a son or a daughter of God, but I am what I do. I am what I have. I am the square footage of my house. I am my possessions. I am my connections. This is the reason why, for example, 20 years ago, the average response, when somebody asked you, hey man, how are you doing? The average response was, I'm fine. Like, without even thinking, we say, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm all right, I'm chill. Nowadays, without even thinking, the majority of people, our reflexive answer is, I'm busy. I'm busy. And part of the reason why we say that or think that is because in our culture, the Kool-Aid is that if you're busy, you must matter. If you're busy, you must be important. If you're busy, you must be significant. This is the reason why there's actually been research done that proves that human beings, people, actually lie about how busy they are. True story. They actually lie or they somewhat kind of dram dramatize it because they feel like if I'm busy, I must be important. Importance comes down to identity. We find our worth here. You see how this is all connected? Now, the third thing is what I would call, just for the sake of... Um, uh, simplicity, I'll just give you the acronym. It's called Upward Mobility. I can spell, all right? It's called Upward Mobility Comparison. And Upward Mobility means that in a culture of production that I need to produce because we're always talking about upgrading our lives. We feel like, man, the person with the most toys wins. Now, that's not biblical. 
And I'm not suggesting that material goods are bad in itself. I'm not saying that our cars, our houses, our clothing, our shoes, our gadgets are bad in themselves. But that's not the purpose of life. But in an upward mobility culture, there is that phrase that goes, the one with the most toys at the end wins. And if we live in an upward mobility culture, what happens? We end up getting into the comparison game. You might not say it, but somehow we start comparing my clothing with somebody else's clothing. My shoes with somebody else's shoes. We begin to compare my stuff with that person's stuff, my situation with that person's situation. And in our world today, what's changed in the last 20, 30 years is something called the internet. So 20, 30 years ago, what were you doing? You were simply comparing your life with that one kid in your classroom, that one neighbor on your block or in your apartment building but now with the internet, you're comparing yourself, yourself with your whole Instagram feed with people all around the world. So next thing you know, you're comparing yourselves with the Jones, the Smiths, the Wongs, the Kims. I got you Asian people. <laughs> We're comparing ourselves with everybody. And after a while, what ends up happening is that there's busyness and distraction. So here you are in the season, 40 days of preparing our hearts for a prayer fest, and it's a good and beautiful thing. I know because I had the privilege of joining you at prayer fest a couple years ago, but if you're not honest about these things, if you don't have the courage to examine your own hearts, well, I would tell you it's going to be really challenging. So what's the remedy? What's the beautiful flowers that we need to be um, planting in our lives? Well, let me give you what some call a rule of life. And a rule of life, some other fancy words to describe it is, what are your values that drive you? Now, some of you might think, this is kind of ironic. You're telling us, Pastor Eugene, that our lives are busy, and now you're giving us more work to do. Now, it's not so much more work. It's really about having the courage to examine, what's my rule of life? What are the values that drive us and shape us, that undergird our foundation in our lives? So for example, if like hypothetically, if money is a rule of life, then you know what's going to happen. It becomes the foundation by which you justify everything in your life as long as you make as much money as possible. If popularity is the rule of life. So for us as Christians... What's the rule of life? Now, the reason why this is so important, friends, is because I'm encouraging you, you actually have to be very strategic, intentional about building a prayerful life in our hearts. It doesn't happen naturally. Does that make sense? I wish I could tell you as a fellow brother in Christ 
I wish I could tell you that as a Christian, prayer life is just natural for me. Maybe it is for you. For me, I can't honestly tell you that it just happened so naturally in my life. And so I actually have to be very strategic and intentional in your prayer booklet that uh, was been passed out, for example. It talks about uh, how to allocate 30 minutes every single day. That's what I mean by intentionality. Let me give you another example if I'm losing you. My wife and I, we've been married 22 years. She's now a marriage and family therapist, which means that she wins every argument in our family. You notice only the women laugh at that? So when we first got married, this true story, we struggled in our marriage. And one of the reasons why we struggled is because it's taken me a long time to confess that I will always be a recovering workaholic in my life. And through her assistance, I came to realize that uh, working is like an idolatry in my life. Part of this immigrant work ethic that my parents instilled in me. But in the first two years, there was work, and then we were planting a new church, and because of that, I was constantly away, constantly in meetings, constantly doing visitations, constantly in strategic meetings, and so and so. And so after a while, what happens? I don't care how much you love one another, if you don't spend time together, intimacy begins to disintegrate. That makes sense, right? Time matters. Quality time matters. So what my wife did is that she would take uh, my daily planner. So young kids, teenagers, about 22 years ago, we didn't have this thing called smartphones. We had this thing called daily planners with the calendar for the whole year. And every day you would write down with something called a pen and you would write down your schedule for that day. Does that make sense? You guys remember that, right? Our daily planners. And so what my wife would do is that she would take my daily planner, and when I wasn't watching, she would every Friday for four hours, she would block time just for her and me. For 52 weeks. So for example, on week number one, she would say, date with my beautiful wife, Minhee. Week number two, romantic lunch with my beautiful wife, Minhee. Week three, nice walk by the lake with my wife who's never wrong. <laughs> Happy face emoji. Week four was really awkward. Buy shoes for my wife, Minhee. But you see my point? Is that she realized, even though we're talking about it, if we're not actually being intentional about it, even good intentions don't always work. I mean, have you ever met a Christian who said, prayer, overrated? Prayer is bad. I mean, every Christian wants more time to pray. So if you look at my calendar right now, I have all of my, point, my appointments all organized. Because if I don't have it scheduled in, I'm going to forget. 
So my question to you is this. If prayer, if rest, if Sabbath, if intimacy with God, if reading God's word, if they're important to us, why don't we schedule those things in? Why aren't we strategic and intentional? That's what I mean by a rule of life. It's speaking about those values. So let's speak about those four things. Here's the first one, and it's this. It's Jesus. You could say that Jesus is the cornerstone or he's the center of everything that we do. Jesus matters. When I look at the story of Mary and Martha, as I shared earlier, Martha's heart is in the right place. But you notice what happens is that Martha invites Jesus into her home and then she goes to the kitchen even with good intentions, begins to cook, begins to prepare, begins to organize. But along the way, when I read the scripture, she never asks Jesus what Jesus wants. You guys get that? That's the key here. It looks really good, and it is, but the missing point is that Martha never says, you're my guest, you're my host, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. What do you want? Don't miss this. To be a follower of Jesus is that we're saying, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. I desire to hear you, to listen to you, to be guided by you, to be moved by you. I want to go where you want me to go. But if you're anything like me, sometimes I've got my own agenda. Sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say, God, here's my plans, my hopes, my ambitions, my agenda. Now, how can you be a part of my life? Whereas our prayers should be, as we arise, God, you are God. This is the day that you have made, and I will rejoice in it. I believe that you are at work. I believe that you are moving. I believe that you are the one true God. I know that you're at work, so how can I be a part of what you're already doing? It's two different prayers. Because of this, we believe that Jesus is our identity. He's our rock and fortress. I'm so grateful that we find our identity in Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing that we can learn from our passage here, and it's this. is that we need to have a rule of life that holds in high value rest and Sabbath. Did you know that in the Bible, Sabbath is mentioned over 70 times? Did you know that Jesus was really highly sought after? Like, I can imagine his disciples saying to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, let's get this thing going. Let's grow this movement. 
Let's get more and more followers. Let's get more media, more attention, more eyes on you. This person wants to see you. This person wants to meet with you. This person wants to endorse you. This person wants to eat with you. This person wants to support you. This person in that town, in this city, in this region, they want you. And you notice how throughout the Gospels, we don't have the time to read every single instance, but to give you an example, Luke chapter 4, verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, in between two amazing miracles, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So my question to you is this, if Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah, Savior, fully God, fully man, perfect God and perfect man, needed to retreat for rest and solitude and prayer, how much more do you and I need him? See, this is countercultural. Society says, go, 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 achieve, 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 achieve. And here in Scripture, it says to make sure that we're creating time for rest and Sabbath. Man, sometimes, friends, listen, sometimes we've got to learn to say no. I grew up in a family where the only acceptable answer was yes. Yes, mom, yes, dad. Now, I love my parents, but one of the things that I never learned from my parents was learning to say no. So even as an adult, I'm always saying yes, and I'm now learning sometimes you have to say no even to good things in order to say yes to God things. They're different. And there are a lot of good things. But when you say yes to everything, you begin to have a bit more difficult time saying yes and being available to God things. Here's the third thing that we can talk about, and it's the word called presence. Now, this really matters because it tells us it's not just about quantity. It's also being about intimacy with God. Uh, let me give you a story. When one of my daughters, many years ago, she was eight or nine years old, and I went to her and I said, Trinity, how do I become a better father? I had the courage to ask my kids, and I didn't think it was going to be a serious conversation. I'm just trying to pass time. And I say, Trinity, um, name me three things, three ways I can be a better father. What shocked me was that she answered that question instantaneously, as if she's been preparing her whole life, as if she's made a list somewhere in her diary or something. But no joke, she just instantly fired three answers. And I remember them specifically. She goes, Dad, you need to play more games with my brother and sister and me. So I was like, all right, okay, I got you. I'll crush you still in Monopoly, but still, I'll play more games with you. The second thing that she said is, Dad, you need to be on your computer and phone less. Man, I'm a little 
little uncomfortable here. It's not what I envisioned. I thought you would just say, take me to McDonald's or something. The third thing really upset me. She said, Dad, you need funnier jokes. Go to your room right now. Conversation's over. She's been grounded ever since. If I could summarize what I think she was saying, she was saying, we need more of you. We need your presence. We need connection. We need intimacy. I'll give you an example. I was reading this New York Times article about how changing culture has even changed the way Americans especially vacation as a result of technology. 30 years ago, vacation used to be seen as an on-off switch. When you're on vacation, you turn off. But now, because of technology, the metaphor that people use is it's a dimmer switch. Because we're always connected. We always feel like I've got to be available. And at the expense, we're not present with those around us. And so listen to this. This story here, the Bible describes what Martha was doing. There's a word called perispato in Greek. The word perispato, it's really interesting Because the word distracted does not do it justice. The Bible says she was distracted. Perispato means that she was pulled in many directions. It means that she grew anxious. It means that she grew envious. It means that she grows upset. It means that it begins to affect her insides. And as a result, it changes her actions on the outside. You see what happens to Martha? Good heart, good intentions. She forgets what Jesus wants. And the next thing you know, she gets all riled up emotionally. She becomes anxious and angry. She becomes emotionally upset. And then she goes, Jesus! She begins to tattletale on Mary. I'm the good, good person. Please tell Mary, scold her, rebuke her. And I love what Jesus does. And we'll get to it, but that's the point, is that if you're so distracted, listen, friends, you're just human beings. You can't be everywhere at the same time. You can't please everyone. You can't know everything. If you were to be able to do all those things, then you would be God. Newsflash, you're not God. Only God is God, and we're not. And the invitation that Jesus shows in this passage, what Mary has chosen, it's good. In fact, he says, it's the most important thing. You guys know that Jesus isn't saying, man, if you guys made more money, I'd love you more. If you had a bigger square footage house, man, I would love you so much more. Right now, like, can you imagine Jesus saying, man, if Christ's church got so much bigger, I would love this church more? Now, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. 
I'm saying God's love for you is not contingent on the things of this world. You got to realize that our identity is on Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's the fourth thing, and it's really important, and it's the word grace. We all need grace. That which we don't deserve, but out of God's love and goodness, he extends this to every single one of us. And I love how Jesus, in this particular story, I love how Jesus simply says, Martha, Martha. Such tenderness. Because Jesus loves both Martha and Mary. Friends, What's your rule of life? When I look at this story, I just imagine here is Mary at her knees, at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine this teenage girl? Doesn't know everything about everything. But what she's chosen, the Bible says, is good and beautiful, is the most important thing. If I could have the worship team come up as I close here. But I love that in this scene here, the last thing that I want you to know is that I want you to realize how scandalous this story is. Did you know that in the time of Jesus, women were not allowed to be in the presence of rabbis and teachers? They weren't allowed to be at the feet of these pastors or spiritual directors. They weren't allowed to touch rabbis at all. They weren't allowed to be learning from them. And so here is Mary, who does an incredibly dangerous, scandalous thing by defying cultural norms, comes to Jesus' feet and just says, I want to be at your presence. I want to sit at your feet. I want to learn from you. I want you to guide me. I want you to shape me. I want you to be my good, good Lord and Savior. Sometimes you and I, we can be so busy. You're having issues with marriage? I'm going to tell you, come to the feet of Jesus. You're having problems with your children? I want to encourage you. Even as you seek the aid of counselors and help, don't forget, come to Jesus. You're having problems with your finances, your jobs, your situation. Yes, speak with coaches, but make sure you come to the feet of Jesus. You're struggling in your relationship with God. You're doing almost everything except you're coming to the feet of Jesus. Be at His 